I'm Adrienne Bush, Director of 50 Plus Ministries and Sacred Arts Ministries, and I am a firm believer that art can heal a wounded soul. It can make us feel something that we weren't expecting. It can inform about history, about emotions. It can get us talking about what that brushstroke means or what the artist was thinking when she did that. What makes this art or why is this piece so expensive? Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper is arguably one of the most famous paintings known to man. Picture it now while I talk you through it. The painting shows us, as the title suggests, the Last Supper with Jesus in the center and the disciples each reacting to being told that one of them would betray him. Their facial expressions range from shock to anger to perplexity. The painting has a great many details that inform the viewer, including the fact that Judas Iscariot is leaned back in shadow, looking bewildered. He clutches a bag. Has he already been paid to betray Jesus, or does this signify his role as treasurer? Thirteen people posturing during a dramatic moment that we as Christians discuss a lot. Every time we practice communion, we conjure images of this moment. There is much to see and ponder in that painting, and I encourage you to stop by Duffy Chapel sometime and enjoy the beautiful print of this painting that is hung on the back wall. Study it. Enjoy it. Da Vinci did spend the better part of three years painting it. I recently saw a meme that illustrated the workload of an artist. It shows a pyramid that almost looks like an iceberg. The whole pyramid is called work. And at the tip of the iceberg, a tiny little piece of the top says, work you see. Artists ponder, we think, we plan, we prep, we hem and haw, and we procrastinate. A lot of people don't know that I'm a playwright. I have now written and staged six full-length plays, many of them commissions, most of them historical fiction, often accompanied by music. In fact, I've written one for this weekend's, next weekend's festival. <laughs> Please come see it. It does not come naturally for me to promote myself. And there's nothing more gut-wrenching than showing your work to its first audience and not knowing how it will be received. Your blood, sweat, tears, and time now exposed to the world, but you give it away when you share your artwork. For me, when I pen a show, every laugh, every bit of applause, every tear helps to justify the reason that I'm putting in the work. Sure, criticism stings, but you just learn to let it roll off and you move on. God is an artist. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. I don't know about you, but that verse makes me feel like a special, loved child of God. It makes me stand up a little bit straighter. It makes me want to stop and smell the roses, to stop and study the art. And we do hope that you'll come to see the art that we have in store for you in the festival next weekend. The theme is the vine and the branches. It is a celebration of our Christianity, our roots as Methodists, and our history at First Methodist. Hopefully most of you got a copy of a brochure like this in the mail. It has all the information. 
We kick the festival off on Thursday night with a culinary workshop led by our hospitality director, Kate Wheaton. You may not know this, but Kate is Le Cordon Bleu London trained as a chef and used to work on Princess Margaret's catering team. She will teach us how to make grape roasted crostini, a cheesy spring vegetable tart, and a beet and chocolate layered cake, and there will be samples, I'm just saying. On Friday, we have a painting workshop with Barbara Davis, who is a fabulous oils painter and instructor. She is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. She coached even me to paint things, and I was proud of them, and I didn't even think I could paint. On Saturday, we have a talk from Dr. Jason Borders, FUMC's own theologian in residence, about the vine and the branches. Jason says, Jesus reminds us that we are to be people who bear fruit, even during times of stress and turmoil. Hmm. After that, we will have two sanctuary-guided tours touching on history and symbols in the sanctuary led by John Bell and Jeff Benton. That night, we will present a Reader's Theater retelling of the story of the founding father of Methodism himself in a performance of John Wesley, a foundation of our fellowship. Featured will be my personal dream team of actors, John McWilliams, Kate and Avery Berry, and Amber Andrews. We will repeat this on Sunday for a matinee. It's only an hour long, and I hope you'll come out and see it. Saturday and Sunday, our congregation and community art show will be open for you to come and enjoy. It showcases mediums of all kinds, paintings, sculptures, needlepoints, quilting, play scripts, books, musical compositions. I'm always blown away by the talent in our church family and the way people use their gifts to glorify God. We invite you to come eat a cheese straw, gnaw on a cookie, and be still with some art for a little while. For more information on the Sacred Arts Festival, please visit fumcmontgomery.org slash sacredarts. And if you're looking for an area in which to serve, the Sacred Arts Ministry team would love to have you. As we continue with worship this morning, we'll do so with our gospel lesson, which comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. At this time, please stand as you're able for the reading of the gospel. Hear now the word of God. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one 
about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did you know we have a playwright and a royal chef on our staff? Who knew? Right? Such a talented team. Gosh, I'm so proud to be in ministry with, with our entire staff, and they need our support and encouragement and are just doing a tremendous job. And I love them so dearly. Also, if you didn't catch it, the word Methodist actually means there will be food. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's what the word means. Um, and the third thing that I'll say by way of introduction, I told the, uh, the early crowd this too, is even though we've boxed up our alleluias until Easter, families, you can come to church between now and Easter, okay? I just want to make sure that you know that as well. Good stuff. Hey, we're talking about worship. It's our sixth core value. And in worship, we should laugh and we should think and we should cry and we should be convicted and and we should be challenged and we should be comforted. So this past week during our Tuesday and Wednesday Bible studies and also in our staff meeting, uh, those who were present were asked to think about his or her most memorable worship experience, worship service. Maybe it was a funeral, maybe it was a wedding, a regular service, a high holy Sunday, uh, something on campus, off campus, you know, um, growing up many years ago, who knows. But for some reason, the Christmas Eve candlelight service sort of emerged as, surfaced as one of everybody's favorites. Would you agree with that, the, the candlelight service? But it becomes particularly memorable when you um, have a wreath that catches fire and all of a sudden Advent is Pentecost. I don't know if y'all remember seeing that or not. Or when the woman's hair in front of you starts singeing and burning and the whole family's blowing it out, you know, and it looks like this holy thing. Or when the wax spills on the teenager's hand and he becomes a shouting Methodist and it's Pentecost all over again during that. Advent. It's great. One staff member talked about the power of the worship service the Sunday after April 27th, 2011. Do you remember that date? It's the day the tornadoes came through North Alabama and Tuscaloosa. One of our staff members regarded the power of, of a candle when there was no power. And they shared the power of being together when so many lives have been lost. Others talked about uh, doing prison ministry work and going and taking worship to, to, to prisons. And in this strange moment, the inmates would flip it and say, now, y'all sit there and we're going to lead you in worship. What a powerful moment to have those who are incarcerated leading worship. Many of us can remember the services all over this country after 9-11 and how full Sanctuaries were trying to make sense of, of terrorism. People in, in the groups throughout this week when asked his or her most memorable worship service, they, they shared tearful moments about First Communion and tearful moments about Final Communion with their family members. We laughed that the most unscripted moment in our worship service is, uh, well, you know, it's Children's Minute, right? It's the most unpredictable, unscripted part of worship. And so on behalf of all of your worship leaders up here, parents, I just want to say something to you. It is so much fun to see your agony when your children come up and you don't know what they're going to say. If they're going to offer something that, you know, is incriminatory or whatever, it is so, we pray for you, we pray for you. One of the men in the Tuesday morning group shared a powerful story about attending the Billy Graham crusade at Crampton Bowl back in the 60s. And another 
guy would chime up, I remember that, or I was there too. I... Come to find out, it lasted 10 days and there were over 100,000 people at Crampton Bowl for a Billy Graham crusade and thousands of people gave their lives to Christ. And, oh, I just would love a good old revival right about now, wouldn't you? Amen. Actually, there is one. I don't know if you're keeping up with what's going on at Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury, Asbury College, and now it's sort of trickled into other campuses around the country. For 10 days and 24 hours on a loop, people are, college students are, are worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's, it's pretty fascinating to watch. From a personal perspective, I recall the moment that I became a United Methodist. It was at Aldersgate United Methodist Church, just down Vaughn Road, and and I remembered how that church welcomed an 18-year-old married couple with open arms having allowed us to be married just a few weeks prior. And then Clay and Leanne, I remember our girls being baptized and how every time another child is baptized into the family of God, I think about our own children. It's a powerful moment. I recalled our own children, Ella and Caroline, and their confirmation right here under the same arches, under the same, the same area, and they said yes to Jesus during their confirmation at this church. They knelt on a, a kneeler right here in the center of this chancel where I knelt and was ordained. It was that same kneeler where our daughter Caroline was married. There's a daddy-daughter moment that happens during a wedding service, a worship service here. Everyone is in place and all the candles are lit and the music is so beautiful and then... And then the doors to the narthex, between the narthex and the nave, they close. And it's just a daddy and a daughter moment. It's only about 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Some of you dads have been there. And I remember standing in that, that moment. We were, you know, just scared to death. And there were so many moving parts and everything. And I remember Caroline locked into my arm. And I started patting her arm like the first day that she rode her bicycle, you know. Like that first time teenagers were ugly and we had to stay up and talk it through late into the night. And then we took a deep breath and those doors opened and we walked into the service of, of worship. It was a wedding. She still had her nails dug into my arm, but it, we, we walked in together and stood in this moment and somehow standing in this cruciform space where we've celebrated life eternal and where we've had communion, where we've shared baptisms, where kids have been confirmed and ministers ordained and, and couple after couple married over as the church blessed them, somehow it, it just became holy. Worship does that. It's this collision course between the human and the divine. And when the human and the divine collide in to one another, we're not the same as when we came. Something's different. Something changes. Life's most defining moments happen in worship. Some of yours has happened right, have happened right here. We're changed by a God who does not change, and we laugh and we cry, and it's all part of our sixth core value, which is a rich history of reverent worship. And the full narrative says, our community of faith values worship that is reverent, holy, and in the Wesleyan tradition. We feel a particular calling to offer traditional worship in a variety of ways to touch a broad base of individuals with different needs. Listen to this line. Our rich history and legacy 
legacy of faith allow us to look to the future with greater understanding of the possibilities that lie ahead. Our rich legacy, our rich history, the shoulders on whom we stand for 193 years allow us to stand tall and to peek into the future to see what possibilities lie ahead. That's a wonderful line. I don't know who came up with it, but who added that to the core value? Somebody in this church did, and they deserve front seat parking at Easter and Wednesday night supper tickets from here on out. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's the core of our weekly connection with God and one another. Worship should allow us to celebrate the past, to know that we're surrounded by the communion of saints, but also to look into the future. Where is God leading us? Where is God sending us? What is Christ calling us to do? Part of that is, is what we get in transfiguration. I, I love what Richard Foster says. He says that worship begins with a holy expectancy, but it ends with holy obedience. You hear the difference? We come expecting to be filled up and comforted and enlightened, maybe. But worship ends with ascending, with an expectation that God's people will be obedient. That worship doesn't just stop here at 59 minutes and 34 seconds or whatever it is that we have to squeeze into the TV time. Worship spills out into the community if, if we're being honest with where Christ is calling us to lead. And that's really the soul of you know, transfiguration for me. You know the story. Jesus and his small group go up to the mountain, James and Peter, James and John, and they follow him. There's an expectancy. They don't know what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it gets weird. Ground shakes and a cloud comes and there's a bright light. And, and Jesus is different. He changes. His physical appearance changes. Peter, he doesn't know what to do at all, does he? Like, let's just have a tailgate right here, right? Moses, Elijah, Jesus. We've got the three pillars right there. Let's just, let's just stay right here and preserve, protect, and defend this moment. But then they hear God's voice. It's something we've read in Scripture before at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved. This is my son. But there's an additional line here that I love. It says, listen to him. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Just prior to this text, Jesus is teaching. And he's telling his disciples, those who would come after me, let's take up their cross and follow me. Those who want to lose, gain their life must lose their life. What is it to, to gain oneself in this world and lose one's soul forever? That's, that's a teaching that Jesus gives His disciples before they go up the hill. And then on the backside of this transfiguration event is the obedience part. There's an expectancy of Jesus as you enter into the holy. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to try to do something different. And then you're going to have to do it on the back end. You know what happens on the back end of this text? Jesus and His disciples, they... They walk down a hill and there's a man that has enough courage to kind of cradle his, his child and he finds his way to Jesus through the crowd. I'm just thinking about how difficult that must have been. And he kneels. He bends a knee to Jesus. He said, this is my child who suffers from, from seizures. Have mercy on him. Heal him. And the, the dad says, I, I asked your disciples and they said they couldn't do it. They didn't know how. To which Jesus says, they do know how, they just don't have enough faith. And so Jesus rebukes the demon, Jesus rebukes the disciples. And, and so all that to say, 
the first thing that happens after this incredible worship experience is, is Jesus goes back down into the valleys of life because there's human need in the valleys. There's human need down this hill on which we are worshiping today. We need transfiguration. Yeah, it marks this time between Epiphany and, and Lent, and we see Jesus on a mountain again. And, and by the way, this will be on the final exam. Anytime Jesus is, is on a mountain, something is about to happen. Anytime there's a mountain in Scripture about which we read, there's something incredible that's going to happen. He preaches the sermon on the mount. We're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And just a few chapters over, the next mountain on which we find Jesus is Calvary. You know what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus changes. His appearance changes. His direction changes. Because He begins locking in His mission. It's been agrarian up until this point. He's been kind of pastoral. It's been out in the Galilee, the region. He has these wonderful seed and sower analogies that he uses. There's a lot of food. It's kind of like a sacred arts festival and, you know, Methodist kind of rally in some kind of way. But there's a lot of food, you know, loaves and fish and all that. But then he gets on this mountain and it's different. This worship event, this worship experience changes, his, changes Jesus' focus. And he's, he's locked in. From this point forward, he never looks back. He's locked in on a mission of forgiveness and reconciliation and offering the world a means for peace. He's locked in on showing us how to die to self because He's going to die Himself. He's showing us what sacrifice means in this world. He's showing us that, that discipleship is, is not easy work. It's not as easy as we make it out to be. And the thing that's so challenging to me about this is, is once we leave worship and we have locked in our mission to meet the needs of the least, the last, the lost, the, the lonely, to do the Matthew 25 work we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's so many things that are going to try to distract us from our mission and distract us from ministry. It's not within just a few verses that Jesus is distracted. His disciples say, hey, Lord, he pulled Jesus over to the side. They say, which one of us is, the, is greater? Which one of us has, is going to have the better seat in heaven? What is greatness in heaven after all? You see, they're trying to categorize. They're trying to hierarchy. They're trying to rank super discipleship. You know what Jesus does? You know, remember that, what he did? He went and he picked up a child and set it right in the middle of everyone said, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not childlike. We do that well enough on our own. Or childish, but childlike. <laughs> humble, humil humble, open, vulnerable, asking honest questions, being teachable. And then the second thing that happens is a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? I've checked all the boxes. I've kept all the laws, but I'm just lacking something in my soul. I'm trying to do all the right things, but I just there's something missing. And you remember what Jesus said. You've got to go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then you can come back and follow me. The guy's like, wait, what? Because he was very rich and he had a lot of possessions, 
And he started grieving, the text tells us. You see, the disciples were distracted. There's plenty that distracts us from our mission. The disciples were distracted by pride and by ranking and by control. Help us control this, Jesus. And the rich man was distracted from joining Jesus' mission because his possessions possessed him. What is it that is distracting us from keeping the mission of Jesus Christ? I can think of a lot of things right now that are doing that. What's your distraction? On what are you so focused side to side that we just are missing the needs of others? You see, the reality is, is this. We have everything about the past there, Moses and Elijah, and the future is, is out in front. And in some way, this text is telling us that if we keep trying to change the past and, and control a future that we can't control, we miss Jesus in the present. What is Jesus trying to do right now? How are we so focused on things we can't change and the future that scares us to death that we miss what Jesus Christ is doing right now? That's the question. Transformation is hard. Change is, is hard. Allowing the Spirit to change us from one way of being into a new way of seeing is hard. It's hard. Jesus had been out in the Galilee all this time, and Peter was like, this is the greatest thing ever. There's thousands and thousands of people coming to the show, Lord. We're going to pledge the budget and all these different things. It's going to be great. But then Jesus has to make a shift and set his sights on Jerusalem where he's going to bump into church and state, to politics and religion. He's just going to always be hitting these guardrails. He's going to make everybody mad until he's executed. His mission changes. So this text puts us atop a mountain where Jesus is transfigured. And Peter's consternation is he said, oh, well, if Jesus changed, I probably got to change too. But I like things the way they are. We like doing ministry the way we've been doing it. Jesus is going to the cross, to Jerusalem. This Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent. And it begs us to ask a question, what do I have in my life that cannot be reduced to ashes? Do you hear that question? What do I have in my life that cannot be reduced to ashes? Buildings, sanctuaries, cars, clothes, toys, gizmos, and gadgets, our own mortal bodies, all are reducible to ashes. What cannot be reduced to ashes are relationships with the people seated around you. Relationships with people who were normally here but are not here right now. What cannot be reduced to ashes are your dreams and your memories and your hopes and God's vision for our church. What cannot be reduced to ashes is the mission of Christ. And those irreducible parts, that's what matters to God, and it should matter to us. These irreducible parts are the things on which we need to focus because that's our way forward. That's our way forward. I'll finish by asking a question. Why is it that we worship? Why is it that you worship? What is worship for you? I mean, we, we call it a worship service. Expectancy and obedience. I think we need more mystery and less certainty when we think about this particular text and our worship service. We need a space to be honest with God and 
and honest with our, ourselves. We need to realize that we glow when we are here with God and one another, but there's, there's some places in our community that need that, that glow from the light of Christ through you. Places where children are hungry and where education is, is lower than it needs to be. Places where there's, there's poverty and we can do something to help families in a generative way. Transfiguration keeps us on point with mission and reminds us that anything that tries to distract us is what we call a temptation during Lent. Susan Russell says this, everything that tells us we are less than, fallen from, short of, not enough, too much, it's all a temptation, it's all a distraction. Everything that fails to recognize the utter belovedness of every single human being, it's all a temptation, it's all a distraction. Everything that wants to take the experience of God's transforming love and contain that in, in some kind of book or statement or, or whatever it is that the world throws up as an institution, it's a booth, it's a tent. We want to lock it down and control it and own it. And it's all a distraction. And yet from heaven itself we hear, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen. Because it's from Jesus that He says, I've come to set the oppressed free and restore sight to the blind, recovery to the captives and to make the lame walk and to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. And oh, that part about loving our neighbor as ourselves, that applies too from Jesus. And so does turning the other cheek and forgiving 70 times 7 and loving our enemies. Listen to Him. That's our mission. That's our daily assignment. Listen to Him and let your life be changed because the church and the world are counting, they're expecting to see something different in God's people. Listen to Jesus. Follow Him. Share His light to the glory of God. Amen.